Hi, welcome to the next episode of Season 7, the Corporate Cowboys Podcast. Join me as we continue reading The Naked Corporation. This is Chapter 7, 7, seven y'all. So it's Season 7, Episode 7, happens to be the book, The Naked Corporation, how the age of transparency will revolutionize business. Let's begin reading chapter seven. It's called Communities. Community is a rich and multi... Hold on, I didn't even tell you who wrote this, huh? I've done this for the past episodes. I might as well tell you. The authors are Don Tapscott and David T. Cole. Published 2002 by Free Press. Now, as we were, community is a rich multifaceted idea referring to a collection or system rather than individuals in precise roles like customers or shareholders. Employees seek security, good pay, and job satisfaction. Customers expect value for money. Suppliers hope for long-term relationships and fair dealings. Shareholders want the stock to rise. But what do communities want? When Starbucks opens a new store, it may change the character of a neighborhood. When it buys more fair trade coffee, it may change the social, political, economic, and environmental dynamics of a town in El Salvador. When it puts Wi-Fi into a cafe, it may become a hub for a local business community or a peace demonstration. With each such small change, there will be a community... There, there will be community winners and losers, each affected far more broadly than the value of their financial transactions with the company. That's to say, this is to say, just a side commentary, because I'll be providing commentary as I read. Not so much, though, so that it, like, it breaks up the continuity of the book, but enough so that you understand what the spirit of a corporate cowboy, what the spirit of corporate cowboys is like. So essentially when Starbucks invests into installing Wi-Fi at one of its cafes, the impact, the impact that it could potentially have on the community is going to be much more than simply just buying coffee, you know, paying for coffee. They're essentially adding another aspect of infrastructure. That's I mean, wireless infrastructure, but infrastructure nonetheless. And that facilitates communication, obviously, with high, uh, with uh, instant communication. What's the term I'm looking for? <laughs> What's the term I'm looking for? Is it rapid communication? High tech? Is it tech? Mass communication? <laughs> but they'll have at their disposal now, or you know, for their utility, they will have the internet with which to create business with which to facilitate business and, and even, uh, organize peace demonstrations. Like they say in El Salvador, you know, where the Matas are at, Mata Salvatruch, all those hit squads. <clears throat> Communities are multi-layered and diverse. You are a member of many, each with unique interests and sometimes compete. That sometimes compete. I fuck. how am I messing up this early on in the chapter? Come on, Alex. Communities are multi-layered and diverse. You are a member of many, each with unique interests that compete sometimes. 
I still messed it up, but I think you understood. <laughs> there you are. There are your nuclear and extended families, your local neighborhood, town, and so on, up to and including the global, quote, community of, li of living organisms. You may be in a variety of interest groups, a gay single support group, an informal golf league, a business lobby, an international church-based environmental NGO, maybe a political party. I like how they went with, uh, with the homos up front, though. It's, it's almost as if they've got an agenda. Though these groups sometimes have conflicting objectives, this hodgepodge is a reflection of your personality and needs. Businesses face the same complexities and trade-offs, sometimes writ very large. A business could, with the same action, support the goals and values of one of your communities and offend those of another. Just a quick comment. I'm not... I'm not against any agenda, right? Unless, unless there is a net negative, right? After everything is taken into account, if it's not reproductive, there you go. Take that to its finality. Continuing, communities are multi-layered and diverse. You are a member of many. I already fucking read that. The six billion people of the world's communities have a stake in the actions of corporations like never before. Since the collapse of communism in 1989, I mean, it didn't really collapse. It just became academic. It became institutional. <laughs> Market capitalism has continually consolidated its position at national, regional, and global levels. Trade, financial flows, and corporate forms have shifted in scale and volume from the local and national to the regional and global at the same time, governments have lost grounds to multinational corporations. Companies are getting bigger, faster than governments. In 1990, the value added by the world's 100 largest multinationals was 3.5% of the world gross domestic product. 10 years later, it was 4.3. In 2000, 29 of the world's 100 largest economic entities were multinational companies, not countries, an increase from 24 in 1990. The two largest companies by value added were Exxon, number 45, and General Motors, 47. They were comparable in size to Chile, Pakistan, more than half as big as Israel, Ireland, and Malaysia, among others, and bigger than such countries as Peru, New Zealand, the Czech Republic, the United Arab Emirates, Hungary, Kuwait, the Dominican Republic, and Guatemala. Meanwhile, many governments have willingly ceded power to free markets. They have privatized state-owned industries like telecommunications and airlines while outsourcing the delivery of public services to the private sector. They have heated demands for deregulation and self-regulation in industries from financial services to food to environmental protection and healthcare. Pressure to keep taxes and deficits low, whether from within, like wealthy citizens and corporations, or without, from competition, from low tax zones or demands from international financial agencies has placed pressure on public services and their capacity to regulate business activities. The result is that corporations are more visible than ever before, 
more likely to attract criticism and praise and more likely to be in charge of solving the world's problems. The problems are big and they list a couple of them here. A couple, two big ones, actually. Two big ones. The first is ethnic, religious, and national conflicts among... <laughs> hold on. Ethnic, religious, and national conflicts, along with terrorism, increased through the past decade and show no sign of abating. Global wealth is rising, but the, inca the income gap grows ever wider both among countries and within countries. Over 4.5 billion people are poor, purchasing power income less than 3,470 US dollars per year. In India, over 80% of the population lives under $2 a day, while in the United States, income disparity and poverty are among the worst of the world's rich countries. Although the world can produce enough food for everyone, 800 million people are malnourished. World life expectancy has risen dramatically, while HIV slash AIDS is producing a holocaust in Africa. Fucking relax. Fucking relax. Okay. With millions dying in China and India also. The world's worst killer is tobacco. No way. Not pollution. Not industrial pollution. Tobacco. Responsible for 1 in 10 adult deaths today. Expected to be 1 in 6 by 2030. 70% of those deaths will be in low and middle income countries. 1 of every 5 adults, 880 million people, is functionally illiterate. The second largest issue, I guess, the second largest problem, is the world's capacity to innovate and produce continues to increase, but at the expense of the environment. There you there you go. You see how instead instead of bringing people together, they want to put all the uh, ethnic, religious and national conflicts up front and they've made industrial pollution number 2. Just just off the power of their fucking nuts. You feel me? They they don't whoever wrote this book, right? Whoever wrote this book may have had good intentions, but they paved the road to hell with them. So, <laughs> There we go. That's the second biggest problem. Okay, here we go. The world's capacity to innovate and produce continues to increase, but at the expense of the environment. World energy production rose 42% between 1980 and 2000 and will grow 150 to 230% by 2050, increasing global warming. I think we already addressed global warming in the last chapter. Go listen to season seven, episode six. That's chapter six, where global warming, they motherfuckers flip-flop on global warming. In the book, in the book, they call it global warming, climate change. We addressed whether or not it's global cooling. <laughs> okay, but here we go. Here we go. Polluting emissions such as sulfur and sulfur dioxide are rising worldwide. Is it really? Is it worldwide or is it regional and just being spread worldwide? <coughs> All right, I'll stop interrupting. Improvements in the developed in the developed in the developed world may be overshadowed by growing waste in the developing world. Estimates that are estimates are that two to six percent of disease in OECD countries. I think that's uh, called um, uh, overall economically something developed i forget what oecd means my apologies folks my apologies but essentially it means like developed 
and developing countries, uh, economically developed. Estimates are that 2 to 6% of disease in OECD countries is a result of environmental degradation. That's air pollution and chemicals. No way. Air pollution and chemicals? It can't be... I mean, these ethnic, religious, and national conflicts can't be producing pollution and chemicals. It's got to be corporate. But, I mean, if corporate funded funded this book somehow through the free press, you know, they're going to try to minimize their issues no matter how egregious the issues look. So, yeah, pollution is number two, apparently. But the challenge. But the challenge. Oh, hold up, hold up, hold up. I fucked up. Uh, here it is. Continuing. Efficient production and recycling have dramatically improved the performance of many rich country economies, moderating and even reducing the use of physical materials. But the challenge only increases. Agriculture is putting pressure on water supplies, fish stocks, forests, and grasslands. Over 1 billion people lack access to safe water, and over 2.5 billion don't have clean sanitation facilities. By 2050, 7 billion people may suffer from lack of water. You mean to tell me that there's no NGOs, no NPOs available that will desalinate the water with government grants? Really? With government grants or uh, charitable donations? Really? All right. Well, continuing. The current addition of 60 million new urban citizens per year is equivalent to adding the urban population of Paris, Beijing, or Cairo every other month. About 50% of the world's citizens have never used a telephone, only 7% have access to a personal computer, and only 4% have access to the internet. Now, The digital divide has a corollary, the transparency divide, where people and communities have limited or no access to the tools of transparency, a free press, the internet, or even telephone service. They miss out on vital information that affects their self-interest. They have limited ability to inform others or to organize in defense of their own interests, especially when compared with companies, governments, and organizations that have abundant use of such tools. Naturally, in such communities, corruption and discrimination tend to run rampant. Really? You don't say? At e- I'm not going to comment on that. I mean, I think when it, uh, when it gets to a point... I guess that the um, arousal, that the stimulation boils over. I might go off on a little tangent, a little on a little rant, but for the most part, I'm gonna try to make the book as comprehensive, no, as yeah, as comprehensible and coherent for you without interrupting so much. So continuing at E Seva walk-in centers in the state of and and. Andhra, is it Andhra Pradesh? Andhra Pradesh, India. Clerks use the internet to help citizens pay utility bills, register birth... Oh my goodness. (laughs) Alex, come on. It's not like you have to read the entire thing with an accent. At E-Seva walk-in centers in the state of Andhra Pradesh, India, clerks use the internet to help citizens pay utility bills, register births and deaths, and conduct many other dealings with the government. Customers spared several visits to government offices are enthusiastic. Chandra, Chandra, Babu, Chandra Babu Nadu 
the chief minister of Andhra Pradesh says the main goals are, quote, transparency, accountability, and speediness, and to, quote, reduce the interface between government and citizenry. The translation, computers rarely collect bribes. Okay, okay, but what about the motherfucking person behind the computer, right? They also reduce corruption by, for example, making tender documents more readily available to all bidders. And uh, there is a figure here, figure 7.1. It's labeled corporations held completely responsible for 2000, uh, for, sorry, for, and it's a U.S. service. It's, letting us, it's a U.S. survey. It's letting us know. So some of the, uh, I guess, attributes or characteristics that corporations are held completely responsible for. This is taken in 2003. I'll just list them off from top to bottom. So essentially from the highest, I guess, view of, of responsibility, what uh, surveyees thought that corporations were most responsible for, to the lowest most responsible. What individual survey takers believe corporations to be the least responsible. All right, so beginning from the top. Corporations are held completely responsible for there is one honesty reporting of honest reporting of financial performance to treat employees fairly. There's three honest reporting of social environmental performance Four, make profit and pay taxes five universally high standards six protect the environment seven Restoring the environment for the future. Eight, good quality at lowest price. Nine, pro- product materials produced responsibly. So you know, the raw materials that go into making products are, are sourced responsibly. Uh, Ten, reduce human rights abuses. Eleven, improve education skills slash skills in communities. Twelve, increase economic stability. Thirteen, help reduce extreme poverty. 14, did I say 14 already or 15? The next one, (laughs) help reduce extreme poverty. Let's call this one 15. The next one, support for charities. And 16, solve social problems. So solving social problems is at the very bottom. Funny, funny. That's that's weird because uh, corporations are publicly chartered. They are chartered by the government. Government's of people by the people for its its people so i don't know where um where solving social problems is so low whatever continuing who was responsible for all this governments yes but people also increasingly look to corporations according to data from environics international's 2003 csr monitor that's figure 7.1 that's the one we just went over majorities of u.s respondents hold corporations quote responsible for specific outcomes like honest reporting of social and environmental performance protecting the environment restoring the environment for the future producing product materials responsibly and reducing human rights abuses interestingly fewer respondents expect corporations to support charities than to achieve these more operationally demanding sustainability outcomes to corporate leaders who demur 
that such social and environmental outcomes are the province of government rather than business, we say, quote, be careful what you wish for because you might just get it. I don't like that phrase, uh, especially in the context of that sentence, because it implies fucking socialism. It implies fucking communism. It, impl- it, it implies uh, nationalization of uh, industries when they should just be held, not held privately, but they should be uh, regulated to an extent by the free market. But the uh, government kind of ties the public's hands behind his back, right? So we can't hold corporations as responsible as we would like either. So who really ends up suffering? Is it the people or the government? A government formed by people. (laughs) Mistrust runs high. Uh, Oh, wait, no. I, I skipped the whole last sentence. Hold on. So after the be careful what you wish for sentence there, it says business lobbies have asked governments to cut back their social investments and to let companies do the right thing and regulate themselves. This survey seems to say that Americans now take this offer seriously. Mistrust runs high. Environics found that six in 10 Americans said that their trust in American companies had decreased over the previous year, significantly more than in other countries surveyed. Interesting. Okay. The next subheading, Wither social capital, wither is W-H-I-T-H-E-R, wither, wither social capital, question mark. In bowling alone, Harvard professor Robert Putnam builds a well-documented case that social capital has declined in the United States, a view that has become the conventional wisdom. During the first two-thirds of the 20th century, there's a block quote here from the book itself. During the first two-thirds of the 20th century, Americans took a more and more active role in the social, political life of their communities, in churches and union halls, in bowling alleys and club rooms, around committee tables and card tables and dinner tables. Year by year, we gave more generously to charity. We pitched in more often on community projects. And insofar as we can still find reliable evidence, we behaved in an increasingly trustworthy way toward one another. Then, mysteriously and more or less simultaneously, we began to do all of those things less often. End block quote. Putnam tracks many declines. And there's there's a list here, so I'll list them up for you. First point. In voting, political or community group membership, attendance at political rallies, and speeches, signing petitions. Point two, membership and attendance of chapter-based organizations, such as the B'nai Birth, Knights of Columbus, Parent-Teacher Association, though self-help support groups are on the increase. Point three, church attendance, with the exception of evangelical conservatives. Point four, membership in unions and national professional associations. Point five, Home entertaining and visiting, card playing, informal socializing, and yes, league bowling. Though casinos, video games, and spectator sports are up. Point six, philanthropy and participation in community projects, though youth volunteering is up. Point seven, perceptions of others' honesty and morality, observance of road signs. 
While acknowledging the growth of new forms of social mobilization, such as the, quote, explosive growth of national environmental organizations, Putnam argues that membership in such groups for most people is not active participation. It entails little more than signing up and writing a check. Statewide referenda have also skyrocketed, but mostly driven by professional firms and special interests. Surveys indicate a very low level of voter sophistication on the issues at hand. Putnam expresses some hope for the internet and other new communications media as mechanisms for re-engagement, but doubts they will make any more impact than the telephone. Here, perhaps, he is wrong. A Harvard colleague of Putnam's, Pipa Norris, in a comparably documented book, Democratic Phoenix, picks up the rise of the environmental movement to analyze it as a proxy for a broader change. She describes it as, quote, the transformation from the politics of loyalties to traditional political parties, clubs, and churches, to the politics of choice, of values, aligned issues, and interests. Norris says that today's social movements and international advocacy networks are Quote, far more amorphous and tricky to gauge. The capacity for social movements concerned about issues such as globalization, human rights, debt relief, and world trade to cross national borders may signal the emergence of a global civic society. Networked agencies are characterized by direct action strategies and internet communications, loose coalitions, rel relatively flat organizational structures, and more informal modes of belonging focused on shared concerns about diverse issues and identity politics. Traditional hierarchy and bureaucratic organizations persist, but social movements may be emerging at the most popular avenue for informal political mobilization, protest, and expression. End block quote. Norris documents the continuing growth of such movements with a history of the growing geographic breadth, diversity of issues addressed, and numeric size of protest demonstrations from the 1950s through the 1990s. Her book was published too early to take note of the largest global protest ever, as of this writing anyway. The 10 million people or more, mostly in Europe, but 350,000 plus in the United States who rallied on February 15, 2003 against war in Iraq. Indeed, as Nora suggests, not only have the modes of organization changed from traditional hierarchies to amorphous networks and NGOs, what we call stakeholder webs, but so have their methods from traditional politics to demonstrations, internet-based forced transparency, direct engagement with firms and government agencies, and direct action to improve conditions and in communities. Indeed, their targets have changed too. Where once political participation via political parties and community groups almost exclusively targeted governments and politicians, today's activists also target expose and engage with companies, international agencies, business associations, and for that matter, NGOs. Norris found that people who support environmental activism are less likely than average to vote, but 
more likely to support protests such as demonstrations, petitions, and boycotts. They are also more likely to engage in mainstream civics like sports and arts clubs, professional associations, and unions. All this comes together most especially in Scandinavia, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, and the United States. Norris's data did, do not include Norris's data do not include the United Kingdom, France, and Canada. Sorry about that sigh there mid-sentence because I fucked up the pronunciation. Continuing, continuing. Why is this happening? With the decline in the power and function of states, the world's diverse networks of communities have increasingly concluded that for their interests to be served, they must deal directly with corporations and international institutions. Call them what you will, civil society groups or NGOs, they've been on an explosive rise just about everywhere. The Union of International Organizations has been tracking the development of non-governmental networks, especially nonprofits and voluntary associations, since 1907. It is now tracking over 45,000 such groups, compared with fewer than 10,000 pre-1980. NGOs receive over $150 billion in annual donations, about 80% from individuals and the rest from bequests, foundations, and corporations. NGOs are visible at the barricades, exposing companies to new scrutiny, demanding accountability and changes in value and behavior. But these high-profile actions are the tip of the iceberg. Partnership is really the norm as NGOs provide advice and expertise, help strengthen community relationships, and participate as trustworthy third parties to monitor firm behavior. Where such relationships work well, real-life outcomes are substantially improved, while everyone gains market credibility and brand strength. The next little subheading here is the new civil society and the power of transparency. NGOs have racked up some impressive victories. There's a couple of points here. I'll list them off. The first, the campaign for nuclear disarmament launched in the United Kingdom during the 1950s was the springboard for a global movement whose efforts culminated in the ratification of the 1996 Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty by 136 countries. A The second point, a broad coalition of environmental NGOs from Greenpeace to the Sierra Club was a prime mover in the drafting of the 1992 Kyoto Accord. Members of this coalition spent the next decade campaigning for ratification by individual countries and gaining commitments to change products, services, and industrial processes from carbon-intensive businesses and industries. The third point, the World Social Forum. The annual meeting of thousands of NGOs and political groups from around the world in Porto Alegre, Brazil, coincides with the World Economic Forum, the premier conference of world business and political leaders in Davos, Switzerland. That's, that's fucking cute, right? How <laughs> That's cute. Increasingly, I mean, if you don't know about, about these organizations, if you don't know how deep these motherfuckers run, I mean, you've got 
Google and Bing and fucking DuckDuckGo and, and, and all these search engines at your fingertips, right? In 2023, go look them up. See, uh, go, go check out what they're all about. See if you can't sign up to be a member. <laughs> Increasingly, Davos pays homage to Porto Alegre, vying to attract leading NGO speakers and attendees. In 2003, Brazil's newly elected president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, spoke at both by requesting bringing the World Social Forum message to the World Economic Forum. I don't know. Maybe the dude was under somebody's thumb. Maybe they had that motherfucker in a vice. I mean, maybe he didn't want to come come out uh, independently on his own accord. And instead, you know, with a, with a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of uh, enhanced encouragement. Point four. Continuing, continuing. Point four. Countless companies, as we described throughout this book, have changed their products and services, altered labor and employment practices, and even redefined core business strategies in response to NGO recommendations or action campaigns. Some, like McDonald's and Nike, pay a big price for their inability to visibly meet NGO and civil society demands and expectations. NGOs, at first glance, are a peculiarly a a peculiarly peculiar peculiar NGOs at first glance are a peculiarly modern phenomenon, but their antecedent their their antecedents 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 I think it's antecedents antecedents and antecedents antecedents because it's not anti right anti antecedent. It's what comes before, but their antecedents, what you know, what, ha- what the organizations that have come before them, include <laughs> millennium-old religious communities. Little more than a handful existed half a century ago. Today, there are tens of thousands. Each typically focuses on a single issue or set of issues. Most often, side effects of today's global economy. Information, hence transparency, is particularly critical to NGOs. They lack the financial clout that other stakeholders enjoy. Mostly, all they can do is learn, inform, volunteer, persuade, organize, and demonstrate. In extreme cases, they will try to convince others who do have economic power to use it. Consumer boycotts, for example. NGOs engage in several forms of action all in the context of stakeholder webs that they build, lead, and join. Uh, There's a couple of points here as to what else they do. Conduct research, produce, and publish information. They work closely with business and political leaders to inform, educate, and advise them. Next point here. Campaign for the support of community members, employees, shareholders, or other stakeholders. Once mobilized, such, such support can influence the decisions and actions of business people and politicians. The next point here is they conduct targeted, issue-oriented campaigns using a variety of tactics ranging from information dissemination to civil disobedience. The next point, they address problems directly. Some NGOs, like Action Aid, put workers in the field to tackle social or environmental problems. Increasingly, companies partner with and subsidize such activities as partners of NGOs. Taking IT Global, that's, a, that's one name, that's one word, one name. Taking IT Global, founded by Canadian net generation entrepreneurs Mike F- Fordick and Jennifer 
Corriero Corriero mm. uses digital technologies to help young people in more than 60 countries launch social, political, and creative networks. Next point, they perform specialized services such as auditing firms' corporate responsibility reports. The next point, last point, engage with other organizations to build networks of NGOs, common approaches, toolkits, and so forth. Sometimes NGOs, like any other organizations, lose track of their mission and turn into self-perpetuating, even corrupt institutions. You, you don't say? What? Like, <laughs> like hello, what was those other organizations? Like the World Social Forum and the World Economic Forum? What? All right. And many NGOs lack the transparency that they demand of their targets. But overall, the record of NGOs is good, even exemplary. Top NGO brands outrank many consumer brands. Companies must make deliberate choices about which NGOs to work with, but ignoring them is not an option. It's best to engage with them since NGOs and other civil society groups can mobilize AWEBs of support or challenge a corporation's very license to operate. What are, uh, what are AWEBs? We have B-Webs, S-Webs. What the fuck are AWEBs? Is it activist webs? Activism webs? The next subheading here. The Chiquita story. Ooh. Ooh. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yo, I kind of want to read ahead real quick. I mean, I'll read it with you. I, I will read it with you, but... If this little subsection here uh, reports, I mean, I guess it was pretty big news in the 2000s, right? Or, or earlier on and after that, if it reports and if it lists the story, if it provides us the story of Chiquita Banana contracting with mercenaries to wipe out villages that refuse to cooperate on banana plantations, quote unquote plantations, right? If, if it reports on it, yo, this book will turn based on a dime it'll just become based in my book at least right but if not if not it's the same watered down bullshit that a lot of self-help books provide i mean granted there are some nuggets that we've been gleaming uh that, that we've been gleaning gleaning um some gleaming nuggets that we've been gleaning right uh with every chapter that i've read but Man, if it doesn't provide the, the hit squads, if it doesn't provide the hit squad, some, you know, some fucking action, fam. If it doesn't provide us with that fucking action, then I'm going to be disappointed. The Chiquita story. Can a leopard change its spots? Maybe not. But a banana can. Consider Chiquita. <laughs> I'm over here reading it hella seductively, hella sensuous now. Bananas are the most popular fruit in the world. North Americans eat half a pound per person per week. Chiquita Brands International, which also sells other fresh fruits and Stokely canned vegetables, with $2.2 billion in revenue, is the world's largest producer. Most of its employees and production come from Central American countries like Costa Rica, Guatemala, Panama, Nicaragua, and Colombia. 
Carmen Miranda, the 1940s Latin American singer and movie star, inspired the company's ubiquitous Miss Chiquita Banana, a character and the popular Chiquita Banana song. The company has... <laughs> I'm trying to keep this up as long as possible until we get to the fucking hit squads. The company has several historic firsts. <laughs> In 1904, it perfected the first unbroken string of wireless communications from the United States to Latin America, permitting its transport vessels to communicate with company locations. Ooh, it sounds almost, dare I say, paramilitaristic. Ooh. Here we go. Continuing. In 1910, the United Fruit Company, as it was called until 1989, initiated banana research in Latin America to develop new disease-resistant varieties. In 1963, it was the first produce supplier to put a brand sticker on its products. And in 1992, Chiquita began work with the environmental NGO Rainforest Alliance on the Better Banana Project. Fam, come on. We're fucking two paragraphs in. Get it to me. <laughs> All this belies the slithery past of the octopus. Yo, I'm getting goosebumps. As the company used to be called. Yo! In, the, in its new spirit of transparency, Chiquita now admits responsibility for past transgressions and attitudes. Founded in 1989, the United Fruits Company, as the company was originally called, routinely used arm force to keep employees in line. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> All right, I'm done. Let's hit this. Its name is linked forever to the pejorative per term Banana Republic. Now you guys know. Which describes a Central American country whose dictator is on the company motherfucking payroll. United Fruits was directly involved in various U.S. military interventions and coup d'etat. That means that they were overthrowing motherfuckers out there, including the notorious CIA-supported overthrow of Guatemala's democratically elected government in 1954, when U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles was a company shareholder. Ooh. 21 years later, company president Eli Black jumped to his death from his Manhattan office window. Oh, really? That was that motherfucker? A CEO invest... A C... Sorry, an SEC investigation. I mean, I guess they were fucking investigating executives. A SEC... An SEC investigation revealed that he had bribed the president of Honduras with $1.2 million with another $1.2 million promised for a reduction in export taxes and had also paid off various European officials to the tune of $750,000. In the early 1990s, Chiquita had visions of a big banana market. Yeah, right. I bet they were using big banana fucking clips. <laughs> big old banana magazines with... Hold on, hold on. Chiquita... <laughs> relax, Alex, relax. In the early 1990s, Chiquita had visions of a big banana market in post-communist Eastern Europe. It invested massively in ships and facilities, incurring a long-term debt of one 
billion dollars. But rather than bound into an expanding market, the company slipped. The market failed to materialize. Yeah, because you know communism died, or at least uh, communist Russia got dismantled. Right, a global supply glut and depressed prices ensued. CEO Carl Linder blamed the company's subsequent poor results on bad weather and crop disease. No, right, right. It wasn't. It wasn't fucking mismanagement and just outright fuckery. No, it wasn't that. It was bad weather it was it was fucking climate change it was global warming and global cooling that were fucking up the crops with disease it was really uneasy it was really diseased un uneased <laughs> then uh, i'm all the way out here man and then then in 1993, the European Union decided to strengthen its preferential treatments for banana imports from former colonies in Africa, like the Ivory Coast and the Caribbean, like Jamaica. While Dole had made investments in such countries and was more widely diversified, Chiquita was again caught flat-footed. Carl Linder, also the company's chairman and largest investor, decided to tackle the problem. Ooh, tell me, tell me... He goes in running and gunning, just, just for the fuck of it. As he moved in on the White House and the U.S. Congress, he gained a reputation as a pioneer of soft political contributions. Oh, so really he was just lobbying fools? He, uh, this, isn't, this isn't new. He's he, not a pioneer. He's a fucking klutz. He's a klutz because he was fumbling the bag, get it? As he moved in on the White House and the U.S. Congress, he gained a reputation as a pioneer of soft political contributions. Between 1999 1993 and 1999, gifts from Linder, members of his family, his companies, and their executives exceeded $5 million. Linder received several invitations to the Bill Clinton White House, including an overnight stay in the Lincoln bedroom. Politicians from the president on down, that's Republicans and Democrats, intervened aggressively on Chiquita's behalf. The U.S. government brought the banana case several times to the World Trade Organization. It ruled in favor of the U.S. complaint, but Europe didn't budge. So, in 1999, the United States imposed punitive tariffs on nine types of European goods, severely hurting thousands of small U.S. importers in the process. In 2001, Europe gave in. But through the decade, Chiquita lost many hundreds of millions of dollars yeah but at least they didn't slip under right Ooh, fucking too big to fail bailing out bananas but what do we get in return we don't get we don't get banana mags from these you know leftover communist countries you mean to tell me that chiquita just just stopped stopped employing <clears throat> stopped transacting in wet work really really when they had a foothold both in third world developing countries and a, a a rather developed communist rush. I mean, come on, fucking come the fuck on. This is corporate war. It's the corporate world order. You know the corporate war is happening. And I mentioned before in past episodes, it can be either hot or cold, right? And it was sure a cold war while communism was uh, was was around. But you mean to tell me that it, it just it just stopped? It just ceased to exist? It just evaporated? Nah, fam. Nah, that shit is lingering. It's lingering. This blood money doesn't just evaporate. Continuing, continuing. A watershed event occurred on May 3, 1998, when the Cincinnati Inquirer ran a 20-page expose 
of the locally headquartered company, spearheaded by investigative reporter Mike Gallagher, the article painted a detailed portrait of a company engaged in life-threatening labor and environmental practices, financial folly, political corruption, and borderline criminal mismanagement. You mean what? What do you mean borderline? Well, maybe they're that good, right? Maybe, maybe they're that good. It's only borderline. Shit, I'm, I'm, hold up. I'm a borderline. I'm, actually, I'm not going to implicate myself. Fuck all that. <laughs> Drawing on a year's in-depth research, including Chiquita's own internal voicemail messages, which were improperly accessed by Gallagher and displayed on the internet for the world to see, the series showed how transparency can devastate a company in the information age. The article's introduction listed the following charges, and there are, are several points here. I will go through them one by one for you. The first, Chiquita secretly controls dozens of supposedly independent banana companies. It does so through elaborate business structures designed to avoid restrictions on land ownership and national security laws in Central American countries. The structures also are aimed at limiting unions on its farms. Uh, that's completely legal, though. That's totally legal. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna venture. I'm not gonna I'm not going to judge as as uh, as to their as to its ethic, right? Because I do believe that if you are doing business, if you're transacting business in any region in any locality, then you are you ought to take care of the community that surrounds you. I mean, why else do you think you know mob bosses and the mafia and cartels are set are held to a relatively high esteem? It as for as I mean as as it pertains to like their immediate community. Why? Because they take care of their immediate community. Sure, they might have like rivals the next fucking block over, right? Or the next state over or whatever. But for the most part, because they take care of their community, their community ten tends to support them. Tends to support them. A lot of folks say it's out of fear, but honestly, many, many, for many, it's a thing of respect, right? And uh I, I would venture to guess that few respect Chiquita Banana and its practices over and uh, in, in under in, in other nations and other countries. Like they're making us look bad. It's a U.S. corporation, right? So they're making the U.S. look bad. It's giving us a bad, a shit reputation. The next point: Chiquita and its subsidiaries. Do you like how I pronounce Chiquita? That's in a, an homage of our Central American, Southern American. Uh, was it Southern American also? Yeah, it's, it's an homage of our Latino counterparts. Chiquita and its subsidiaries are engaged in pesticides practices that threaten the health of workers and nearby residents, despite an agreement with an environmental group to adhere to certain safety standards. You see, now, I would venture to guess that the only reason that they violate that agreement is because Chiquita has more balls and literally has more guns than this environmental group, you see. But, you know, if if there was a corporate cowboy available, you know, you know, a hitter on the payroll somewhere, either in the environmental group or inside of Chiquita, then, you know, it might be able to be regulated in a more, <clears throat> I'm going to say wholesome, in a more ballistically wholesome manner <laughs> point three regardless of that environmental agreement 
Chiquita subsidiaries use pesticides in Central America that are not allowed to be used in either the United States or Canada or in one or more of the 15 countries in the European Union. Uh, to me, that's a huge problem, I think. Whether or not it's criminal, it should be uh, charged civilly because if they're banned, if their use is banned in the United States, more than likely it's due to the uh, FDA regulating the, its use on food products meant to be consumed by the public, right? So if they're using these overseas in Central America, I mean, that's, gonna, that's in violation of produce meant to be imported into the United States, which to me, like amounts to criminal behavior, if not some kind of civilly liable behavior, some kind of liable behavior. Point four, a worker on a Chiquita subsidiary farm died late in 1997 after exposure to toxic chemicals in a banana field, according to a local coroner's report. I'm just going to gloss over that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not glossing over it. That was that was the whole sentence. But I mean, I think that falls under the use of either toxic chemicals as pesticides, or I don't know, maybe he caught a bullet to the brain trying to escape the plantation. <laughs> continuing, continuing. Point five, hundreds of people in a Costa Rican barrio have been exposed to a toxic chemical emitting from the factory of a Chiquita subsidiary. Point six, employees of... Sorry, I heard a noise. Point six, employees of Chiquita and a subsidiary were involved in a bribery scheme in Colombia that has come to the attention of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Two employees have been forced to resign. Point seven, Chiquita fruit transport ships have been used to smuggle cocaine into Europe. Authorities seized more than a, more than a ton of cocaine worth up to $33 million in its pure form from seven count them one two three four five six seven chiquita ships in 1997 alone <laughs> although the company was unaware and did not approve of the illegal shipments problems were traced to lax security on its colombian docks sure they were not aware okay the next point the last point security guards have used brute force to enforce their authority on plantations operated or controlled by chiquita in an internationally controversial case chiquita called in the honduran military to enforce a court order to evict residents from a farm village the village was bulldozed and villagers ran out at gunpoint on a palm plantation controlled by a chiquita subsidiary in honduras a man was shot to death and another man injured by guards using an illegal using any legal there's no such thing as illegal automatic weapons using an illegal automatic weapon wow. an agent of a competitor has filed a federal lawsuit claiming that armed men led a chiquita led by chiquita officials tried to kidnap him in honduras hmm. an agent of a competitor an agent, what kind of agent? An agent of a competitor, it says here, has filed a federal lawsuit claiming that armed men led by Chiquita officials tried to kidnap him in Honduras. What kind of agent? I would like to know. Were they a financial agent? Were they a laboratorial, some kind of scientific agents? Maybe they were working on the new disease uh, resistant strain of bananas that, I don't know, maybe they could 
they can patent it and make millions and billions off of. Oh man, but yeah, I mean, that was that was somewhat uneventful because that that one in Honduras was specifically the one I'm talking about. I think they really they really discount and minimize it with the fact that Chiquita called in the Honduran military. You don't just call in the fucking military. That's a hit squad, all right? <laughs> you don't just call in the military to enforce a court order. You don't do that. That's a hit squad. All right, continuing. The article also described former CEO Carl Lindner's campaign contribution spree. Chiquita's recently appointed CEO, veteran company employee, Stefan Warshaw, reacted to the reports with anger. Although the Inquirer had first said that a company employee had provided voicemail messages to reporter Mike Gallagher, it turned out that he had misled the paper and had personally hacked into Chiquita's system to retrieve the message. What a fucking gorilla. Mike Gallagher, the gorilla. Okay, okay. This became the basis for a legal offensive by the company. The newspaper issued a front page apology and, to the dismay of free speech advocates, disavowed the entire story. It removed the article from its website, fired Gallagher, and agreed to pay Chiquita $14 million in damages. Damn. See, when you're a goon, you never lose. That's why Chiquita came up. All right. Gallagher pled guilty to unlawful interception of communications and unauthorized access to computer systems. He was sentenced in 1999 to five years probation. On the surface, Chiquita seemed to have won. Yet, the newspaper's disavowal did not convince anyone that the charges in the article were false. As several observers pointed out, the company never rebutted them. And though the newspaper purged it, the article is available on other websites. Chiquita killed the messenger, but not the message. That message wasn't lost on the company's broader stakeholder web. Its employees didn't need anyone to tell them what parts of it were true and what parts false, exaggerated, or out of context. Shareholders, bondholders, suppliers, and retailers were concerned. Government agencies, the media, trade unions, and NGOs also began to pay new heed to the company. The Inquirer shed light on issues that persist in many parts of the banana industry. In rich countries, minimum labor standards protect all employees, unionized or not. But in many banana-growing countries, rights and wages are reserved for those with money and power. In Ecuador, as recently as 2002, security guards threatened striking workers seeking threatened striking workers. What do you mean striking? Like physically or with fucking you know with gats? Security guards threatened striking workers seeking union recognition at a dole supplier, while 300 company thugs, some armed, assaulted striking workers at a Noboa plantation, which produces Bonita brand bananas. On two separate occasions, Noboa fired hundreds of employees only to be forced to reinstate them and recognize the union after its owner lost the election for the Ecuadorian presidency. 
In Colombia, in 2002, guerrillas assassinated seven banana trade unionists, as well as two bystanders. Dog, no witnesses. Are you serious? You get paid for a job, you gotta fucking pull through and follow through. Pull, hold on, is it pull through and follow up? Pull triggers and follow through. In Guatemala, 2001, 22 men were convicted of perpetrating violence against striking workers at a Del Monte plantation. In such an industry culture and in the absence of a company code of conduct with teeth, you would expect some Chiquita managers to have behaved badly. Chiquita's management group was at a fork in the road. It was not, of course, entirely blameworthy. Chiquita had engaged with NGO Rainforest Alliance in the Better Banana Project as early as 1992. Dog, that's almost a decade ago. A decade before all of this other stuff came to light, you know? That, that's, a, that's a whole decade before all this dirt was dug. Which tells me that this was occurring way before they engaged this NGO, the Rainforest Alliance, in 1992. This tells me that as long as bananas have been growing, the fuckery has existed. <laughs> it's nothing new. Business is war. Continuing, it had by far the largest unionization rate, 70% in its industry, and decent relations with many unions. But it was far from being entirely clean. Jeffrey Zaya, now Chiquita's corporate responsibility officer, was deeply involved with these questions at the time. As he puts it, quote, hell be damned was not the culture, but it wasn't engaged with the external stakeholder community, nor was it mindful of the standards expected of respected global businesses. The dominant feature of the company was that it was insular. It didn't communicate well and was too reactive. This is because it was frequently under attack. It had a history and was the focal point of an international trade war. It wasn't a trade war. It's fucking corporate war. I don't know why they don't just want to own up and, and embrace the culture that they've created. It's like you fuck somebody over and then are surprised when you know when they react and and it's not to your liking it's like they're just supposed to take getting fucked in the ass <laughs> it's like what you 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 didn't want me to fuck you with no lube that, that's weird to me fucking it's like they don't know how to how to do business right and and it baffles me as a corporate cowboy, how there is good business and bad business. Me personally, I believe there ought to be only better business, right? And it's only business. Business should only lead, should only result in net positives for everyone involved. Because if you're fucking anybody over in business, that comes back. That circles back. Karma is a hell of a bitch. Karma comes at the end of a gun or at the, you know, the tip of a knife. Jeffrey Zaya, we already read about this guy, says, uh, bah, 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 bah. it didn't communicate well. It was because it was frequently under attack, bah, 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 corporate their international trade war. There were commercial interests in bringing criticism to the company. So the company was generally closed and defensive. Close quote. 
The company faced a billion dollars in debt. Well, yeah, uh, this is what, Chiquita? Are we still talking about Chiquita? Because they were in the Soviet Union rubbing shoulders, rubbing elbows with folks, getting chummy, getting chummy. That's uh, lost a billion dollars in debt, had years of losses, a six-year and counting trade war, and a confused workforce. No, no, not confused, just intimidated. <laughs> the company CEO, Stefan Warshaw, initiated a period of reflection. Says Zaya, quote, managers felt, we believe, we do the right things. How did people reach these conclusions about us? Have we done enough to share a common set of values and educate people to live these values? It became an issue of governance and process standards and living the values. Social responsibility became a vehicle to establish clear values, disciplines, and accountabilities across the company. He said, don't talk to me about sustainability or CSR. Talk about codes of conduct. I want people to be accountable. No excuses. They behave that way or they are out of here. Close quote. I mean, <laughs> he sounds like he's got balls, right? But he could easily, easily be putting on a front for the papers, <laughs> for, for the headlines, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, all they've got to do is turn a blind eye. It's, it's called plausible deniability for its plausibility. Okay, continuing. Warshaw's initial working group consisted of himself, Zaya, and uh, Zaya was Z-A-L-L-A, by the way. That's why I'm pronouncing it with the, with the, with the Y. Otherwise, it'd be Zala. Zala or Zaya, right? But I'm pronouncing with the, with the Y just for the benefit of the doubt. Providing, giving them the benefit of the doubt. And the VP of Human Resources. During the summer of 1998, they met with several people in the field of corporate responsibility. Zaya singles out the guidance of Robert Dunn, CEO of Business for Social Responsibility. That's BSR. He provided insight on what it means to be an ethical leader and have high standards. In October 1999, Zaya formed a corporate responsibility committee. Its first project was to redefine the company's core values. Today's responsible Chiquita is based on a five-part chain. Really? Today's? Well, today's in 2002, which is when the book was published. Today's responsible Chiquita is based on a five-part chain. Values, standards, compliance, transparency, and engagement. The values are a simple, easily communicated set of principles, e.g., quote, we treat people fairly and respectfully, close quote. Simple as they are, everything else depends on them, and creating them was not so simple. Quote, we grossly underestimated the effort it takes to bring about this kind of cultural change, says Zaya. Quote, it took us 10 months. Steve Warshaw complained that we were too process-oriented. It doesn't need to take this much time. But we ended up having a process of discussion and debate at three levels of the organization. We ended up with three values statements. Well, okay, hold, hold, hold on, hold on, quick comment. Fuck everything they just said, right? The fact that they threw Steve Warshaw, was Steve Warshaw the CEO? Yeah, the company CEO, Steve Warshaw. <laughs> the fact they threw the company's CEO 
under the bus in this fucking quote as saying it doesn't need to take this long and complaining that the process was taking too much time tells me, at least I can make the reasonable inference, that Steve Warshaw knew and was either embarrassed, ashamed, or just downright belligerent about it, saying, we don't need this much time to talk about ethics. Let me pay off who I need to and keep the keep the boat moving, keep the train rolling. Steve Warshaw, gangsta. This quote, continuing, this was enormous commonality on many issues, open, honest, and straightforward communication, as well as ethical and legal action. But only the employees suggested that we recognize the importance of family in their lives. This was a vital process to gain alignment. Now, there's no lingering debate about it. If any employee sees the company not living up to the values, it's their job to challenge them. This turned out to be a hugely important investment in time. Close quote. Continuing, standards translate the values into rules for everyday life. Chiquita's own code of conduct protects freedom of association, non-discrimination, and sets maximum hours of work. It based the conduct, sorry, it based the code of conduct on two tough and continually evolving international standards. Social accountability, 8,000. 8,000. Social accountability, 8,000, based on UN, International Labor Organization, and ISO norms, is Chiquita's core labor standard and the Better Banana Project from the Rainforest Alliance sets of rules for environmental and labor practices. All employees and especially managers, are accountable for compliance with the values and standards. Managers have been trained on the relationship between values, standards, business performance, and continuous improvement. They are elevated on compliance. Their compensation, in part, depends on it. The company produced a comic book style Spanish language version of its values and code of conduct for plantation workers. <laughs> Dog. <laughs> that, all right, all right. I mean, it's 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 fucking comedic. This shit is cartoonish. Literally, it's <laughs> a comic book style. It's like it's like. It literally, you're just handing out comic books of how the company is supposed to be, right? Giving them a glimpse, a glimmer of hope, of of, of faith, of of the prospect that the company is being ethical and not hiring armed mercenaries to come gun down families and and run through villages to uh, poach labor and I I guess talent for the plantations <laughs> really it's 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 the uh, the hard copy form of just lip service you're just paying lip service to these values uh whether or not they're being abided by today in 2023 i've got no interest in investigating why because corporate war never ends as long as corporations exist there is corporate war now there could be a treaty, there could be some peace, there could be an armistice, right? But there's still corporations at the end of the day, and and 
with profit motive, these folks are going to continue making moves slowly or quickly, but they're in to win. That, that's, that's the root of the corporate world order. It's either you participate or you get participated. It's either you're playing or you get played. Continuing. The company produced a comic book style Spanish, ba, 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 and it, oh, it trained them too. I guess compliance is rigor- rigorously assessed, not just internally, but by several sets of professionally qualified independent external auditors. In addition, employees are surveyed also by external auditors to encourage them to speak openly for their own assessment of management compliance. This sounds like so much bullshit. It, it, it goes back to season seven, right? Episode, was it six? The one just before this, where essentially corporations uh, in the name or under the guise of transparency, they're hiring out independent companies to survey and audit their own organizations in the effort to discover what employees are complaining about, right? There, there is, there's no confidentiality. There's no privacy here. The corporation ultimately learns who's complaining, who's bitching, who's whining, and what? You don't think there's going to be repercussions from it? You don't think there's going to be retaliations from it? You don't think some mercs, some payroll mercs are going to be dispatched about it? <laughs> all right, all right. Enough. Continuing. Chiquita's transparency is profound. Yo, a lot of fucking dick sucking on Chiquita, bro. We'll talk. Come on. Many companies expect employees to conduct open, honest, and straightforward communications internally and externally. At Chiquita, this is a breakthrough concept. (laughs) Rather than just call on employees to always tell the truth, often a feat in itself, Chiquita hangs dirty linen for all the world to see. Well, I mean, that's just the the dirty linen that Chiquita wants the world to see. How about that? Continuing, by the time this book hits the stores, the company will have published its third corporate responsibility report. Each edition clearly presents and explains the results of its external audits and employee surveys. It sets specific objectives for the next year and reports on previous goals. These reports and more are publicly available on Chiquita's website. The 2002 report reveals, for example, that the company's Costa Rican division, quote, remains over-reliant on the use of agrochemicals for pest control, while, quote, several female workers alleged sexual harassment in Guatemala. This report, this is in parentheses, this report contain the reports. The reports contain more good news than bad. We sample the bad to illustrate our point. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense. If Chiquita is publishing the reports, you don't, you don't think Chiquita is going to, you know, fucking massage them a little bit. <laughs> the old Chiquita continuing the old Chiquita made its own rules. The new one recognizes that trust depends on reciprocity and engagement with its stakeholder web. 
Zaya is proudest of a 2001 accord with the trade union movement, the first of its kind by a multinational corporation to cover workers in developing countries. Some six weeks before the May 1998 Enquirer story, 300 armed riot police had come to arrest 62 union supporters at a Guatemala plantation owned by Cobiga, Cobigua, Cobigua, a Chiquita exclusive supplier. This resulted in a mass walkout, hundreds of firings, and a protracted dispute fueled by, quote, dirty tricks. <laughs> Cobigua was a separate company, and Chiquita disavowed responsibility. Okay, dog, sure, sure. You're just going to disavow your own supplier who's exclusive only to you, which means that you dictate who, what what it supplies and how much of it. It means you run it. It means you own it. You can't just fucking disavow it and pretend nothing happened. Fucking bullshit. Continuing, in July 1998, the union, Colciba, that's in parentheses, Colciba, tendered an olive branch, formally proposing a get-together. Chiquita failed to respond. On January 10, 60 U.S. religious, human rights, and labor organizations published a letter chiding the company. The coalition organized press releases in Europe and Central America. The company agreed to meet. And the first step on a careful and deliberate path of consultation and collaboration that ultimately led to a groundbreaking agreement on labor and union rights in June 2001. As often happens in these situations, an independent NGO, U.S. Labor in the Americas Project, and its leader, Stephen Coates, played a role as convener, facilitator, and publicist. Also, once the IUF, a major international union body, came into the picture, the process, says Zaya, quote, gathered speed and focus. <laughs> nice buzzwords, Zaya. <laughs> not a union contract, con continuing, not a union contract. The deal is a framework for freedom of association and minimum labor standards in the company's banana operation. It bears signatures from Chiquita, two trade unions, Colciba and the IUF, and the International Labor Organization, a UN agency. Its engagement is much more than skin deep, providing for a joint company union committee, which meets at least twice a year to oversee the agreement's application and address areas of concern. Zaya makes two key points about this accord. First, it is based on ILO standards, such as freedom of association, collective bargaining, and fundamental human rights. Quote, it is much easier to do since we had already adopted the core ILO conventions under SA-8000 a year earlier. End quote. Second, the agreement includes an extraordinary commitment to fair dealing, continuous improvement, and mutual benefit. Both sides promise to abstain from nasty tactics such as public anti-company campaigns and anti-union retaliation. Okay, but like not, not just, <laughs> never mind. I'll keep my mouth shut. 
until agreed negotiation timetables have been exhausted. There you go. That was the catch. Until agreed union negotiate until agreed negotiation timetables have been exhausted. I would imagine, just a side comment, I would imagine after those time quote timetables are quote exhausted, then come the payroll mercs, dog. Then comes the wet work. There we go. Now we're fucking cooking. Continuing, for its part, the union agrees that effective labor management relations depend on Chiquita's commercial success and sustainability. (laughs) Dog, somebody in the union is fucking paid off too. All right, as the open Chiquita value chain evolved, the company passed through bankruptcy November 2001 and March 2002. The result the company stayed in business and its bondholders ended up as majority owners. Through the process, the company worked hard to achieve, quote, a fair balance among the concerns of the many stakeholder groups impacted by the process. Transparency, open, honest, and straightforward communication was central to crossing this chasm successfully. Most broadly, there has been a dramatic change in the company's public reputation. Chiquita has won several awards and is widely cited as a leader in corporate responsibility. A sea change for a company that only a few years ago, only a few years earlier, was being dragged through the mud. But this is just the foundation. Each of Chiquita's stakeholders delivered a meaningful return on the company's investment in values and accountability. Employees kept their job. More to the point, they didn't quit. During the bankruptcy, the company ran business as usual and experienced average employee turnover. Zaya insisted on developing the first corporate responsibility report during the bankruptcy. It was published in June 2002. Consultant Neil Smith, whom Zaya credits for guiding the company through its values process, worried that publication would make the company a target for critics. But Zaya insisted, and rightly, that making the report's commitments public would strengthen their internal credibility and impact. Well, it was a good decision. I mean, it was a good decision on Zaya's part because as a CEO, you ought to worry about the public image and the public reputation, the public relations that your organization has with your stakeholders, with your consumers, with your employees, as well as suppliers. Everybody's affected. I get that. The company also used transparent processes to address the interests of other key stakeholders. In the end, bondholders traded $960 million of old company debt for 95.5% of the post-bankrupt company's shares and $250 million of new debt. Business partners remained on the company's side. Chiquita kept them informed throughout the process, paid its suppliers, and retained its customers. Previous shareholders had to content themselves with 2% of the company's new common stock, plus some warrants. But all the big ones stuck around. As Chiquita points out, this was a good deal compared to the typical Chapter 11 restructuring where shareholders often end up with nothing. Zaya lists 
other tangible benefits of the engaged, accountable, and transparent Chiquita. Environmental care has reduced spending on agricultural chemicals by $4.8 million, recycling cut costs by $3 million. In 2002, improved labor standards saved the Costa Rican operation $500,000 in worker compensation costs. No way. You mean to tell me? <laughs> All right, I'm going to stop being sarcastic. I'll just keep pushing. I will just keep pushing. Zaya insists that the big benefits, like, again, I don't, I have nothing against Chiquita. I think it's gangster as fuck. I got nothing against Zaya. I think motherfuckers, gangster as shit, right? It's, it's the, uh, the way that business is practiced because it is a practice, right? It's supposedly trial and error. But when folks do something that's just downright dirty, right? When they're putting in dirt and they get discovered, they act surprised, dog. It's like, they, they don't feel like they had it coming, right? When really what they deserve is a bullet to the balance sheet. Ah, yeah, you see, you thought I was going to say a bullet to the back of the head. But no, a bullet to the fucking balance sheet. All right, here we go. Zaya insists that the big benefits like crossing the, the like crossing the corporation. No, don't, hey, don't cross corporate. Hold up. Zaya insists that the big benefits like crossing the bankruptcy chasm are hardest to measure. Labor disputes and strikes have become fewer and shorter. A strike in Panama lasts 58 days and costs the company $21 million. In the old Chiquita, Zaya believes it would have been far worse. The labor relations issues in Panama proved intractable, so the company decided to divest its operation. Zaya credibly argues that a transparent, engaged approach to this bad situation meant a less costly and painful outcome for all players. Cost and risk management are good, but what's the upside? In Europe, where Chiquita is number one, Integrity sells bananas. Chiquita sold 54% of its 2002 volume to retailers who engaged with it on social responsibility issues. Some were diligent. They audited Chiquita's production facilities and had it complete a detailed questionnaire. The United States is a different story. Few U.S. consumers today make buying decisions on the basis of social responsibility, and only 7% of the company's volume goes through retailers who make it an issue. Zaya would like to see some external support, whether from government or the social investment community, for retailers and produce managers who want to raise the ante. At the end of the day, says Zaya, quote, we don't have as elegant or compelling a business case on paper as I would like. This effort is undertaken on the basis of values. You don't put a value on honesty. Many companies have fallen apart because a lack of integrity, because of, sorry, because of a lack of integrity. And yeah, it's true. Companies fall apart when they, when they act shady. That shit's logical. That's Business 101. You do dirt, you get dirty. It often stands, continuing, it often stands that trust takes years to build and can be destroyed in seconds. Like I said, you do dirt, you get fucking dirty. Chiquita's story is the flip side. Where mistrust is entrenched, a genuine turnaround can work wonders quickly. 
The speed of this change also entails risk. Will it last long enough to become deeply rooted or will short-term expedient strategies regain dominance? Nevertheless, Chiquita's new approach to transparency and accountability to community and environmental stakeholders is about as good as it gets today. Not perfect, but a benchmark. It is also a compelling tale of redemption. Chiquita's conversion simply and poignantly illustrates the value of integrity, engagement, and accountability for all stakeholders. Is Chiquita an anomaly, an outlier? Few companies have the history and reputation of a united fruit, let alone a comparable record of mismanagement and near collapse. Dog, come on, no, that motherfucker claps. <laughs> Putting a new name on the same face. I mean, come on, dog. All right, continuing. Chiquita, Chiquita had no choice but to clean up its act. Yet lots of stable and successful companies have similar some equally dramatic stories about a scary crisis that drove a business case for social and environmental accountability. Royal, oh, um, here are a couple of points. A couple of points here on um, on these uh, on these stories on these stories about crisis and social and environmental accountability. A couple of points. First point. Royal Dutch slash Shell Chairman Sir Philip Watts had said that, quote, only because it's a sir, quote, sustainable development, integrating economic, social, and environmental considerations in all of our activities has become central to how we do business, end quote. Shell did not adopt these principles lightly. They came after, quote, bitter experiences in the mid-1990s. Human rights fiascos in Nigeria, including the assassination of Ken Sarwiwa, Ken Sarwiwa, fam, if you assassinate motherfuckers, all right, that's not just a bitter experience. Okay, okay, continuing. And the Brent Spar environmental boycott led by Greenpeace in the North Sea. After these events, Shell added two new components to its to its corporate values. Shell added two new components to its corporate values: the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the principles of sustainable development. It also made itself accountable, warts and all, with the externally audited Shell report on its social and environmental performance. Its sixth was published in early 2003. Shell supports the Kyoto Protocol, which calls on developed countries to cut emissions of greenhouse gases by an average 5.2% from 1990 to 2010. Though its business grew 30%, Shell achieved a 10% emissions reduction in 2002, double the Kyoto target years early. This conversation program, oh, sorry, this, com this, conver this con conservation, I don't know, my brain, my brain, dog, my brain. <laughs> this conservation program helped achieve company-wide cost reduction goals of 3% per 
per year. Sustainability converges with Shell's business scenarios. It is preparing for the day when non-carbon fuels like electric fuel cells and hydrogen become a significant part of the market. What dog, you see, this is this is 2002 we're talking about. This book is from 2002 we're talking about. The fact that the general public wasn't on this shit in late 2000 in, in, in the 2010s, early 2010s, tells me that corporations and their control on social media, mainstream media, just tells me that, like I've mentioned in, I think, season seven, episode five, chapter five, right, of the book, there's, there's technology out there abound. There's so much technology out there that could benefit mankind, the human race. And yet it's not. Why? Because of profit motive and motherfuckers believing that hoarding it, I don't know, makes them money. It doesn't. It really doesn't. I get it. I get it. Folks don't want to work more. Why? I mean, change, any change. And I've mentioned this in past episodes and previous seasons. Any change equals different work. But for some motherfuckers, for some weak motherfuckers, different work equals more work and it's not that's not the case different work in the end equals less work because you're evolving with it you're becoming better better at business but i mean for them they just don't want to change they think the status quo the status quo will will allow them to live comfortably they've settled they've become sitting ducks and so and so you've got corporate cowboys who move in that's the beauty of business. You take care of business and business takes care of us. This conservation, I already read that part. Uh, blah, 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 blah. It's preparing for the day for hydrogen cells. La, 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 la. One controversial measure of Shell's transparency is that it reports annually on any breaches of its strict anti-bribery policy. Bribery is a big issue in all extraction industries, which operate in many countries where the rule of law is weak. After my rant, just just a side comment there. After my rant, did those last two sentences not come off as facetious almost? Almost comedian, like a comedian? Like, yeah, like they're continuing to bribe. They're just now reporting on it. They're just disclosing it in, uh, in these transparency reports. It's like, yeah, I'm breaking the law. I'm... You know, I'm often motherfuckers over here. I'm killing fools. But I'm telling you about it. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? I'm telling you. I, I'm, I'm airing myself out. It's like being boastful almost. It's as if you could brag. <laughs> you could brag about bribing motherfuckers because, hey, you're reporting. You're being socially responsible with these reports. So you're, you're just going to do all the fucking dirt that you possibly can now. Why? Because motherfuckers know you're dirty. And you're telling them openly that you're dirty and doing dirt. I tell you, fam, that's gangster as shit. I don't know about you. That is gangster as fuck. Continuing. Uh, this next point. The, the I guess the second, the second story? The second company? No, it's just the second point. I mean, they talk about a bunch of companies here. All right, well, Citibank. 
Citibank, the world's largest financial company, was, along with other banks like Morgan Stanley, already under scrutiny for financing of socially and environmentally damaging projects like China's Three Gorges Dam. It was also being blamed for predatory consumer loan practices by some U.S. subsidiaries. Then, in 2002, its complicity in the Enron disaster and its conflicts of interest that cost investors millions of dollars turned scrutiny into crisis. Shareholders punished the company hard. At time of writing, its shares, though improved over their 2002 collapse, were still tottering well below typical historic values. The company made a variety of changes in corporate and business governance, including the formulation of policies to assess the social and environmental risks of any new financings. <laughs> and then, <laughs> all right, I, I don't want to talk too much shit on the banks, right? Because the banks control, they don't control money. They control uh, a, a large degree of its circulation but um it's, it's only because of that like they can put a squeeze on money but they can't end it i mean you you can only exchange value you can you can only either create or exchange value you cannot extinguish it it's it's like a it's like a law of thermodynamics almost Shareholders, where did it go? Where did it go? Where, did it, where, where was I? Shareholders punished the company hard at the time of writing, yada, yada, yada. The company made a variety of changes, yada, yada, yada. In an October 2002 presentation, the SVP of Global Community Relations, Pamela Flaherty, pointed out that in a decentralized business like City, sustainability principles start out at the corporate level. Quote, Bringing sustainability into mainstream business is a challenge. The jury is out on whether and when, oh, end quote. The jury is out on, on whether and when City will articulate a business case or, for that matter, a consistent program with clear accountabilities. Presumably, anything the company, anything the company can do to restore trust would help its share price. Presumably. <laughs> Others have decided there's a business case even in the absence of crisis. Or maybe its crisis was indirect. Lost in the swirls of history. Hewlett Packard and Johnson & Johnson attribute their ingrained ethics and social responsibility to founding fathers who lived through the Great Depression. Robert W. Johnson's 1935 pamphlet urged his fellow industrialists to adopt a, quote, new industrial philosophy, end quote, entailing responsibility to customers, employees, the community, and stockholders. He believed that the corporate scandals that led to the depression might cause society to challenge businesses' license to operate. The payoff? Johnson & Johnson enjoys an enviable business performance record and, according to a Harris survey sponsored by the Wall Street Journal, has held the highest corporate reputation in the United States four years running, from 1999, the first year the survey was conducted, to 2002. Uh, Mr. Johnson, you're probably rolling over in your grave right now. Having survived the Depression, having told your children how to uh, 
how to conduct themselves, it probably hurts to see other companies. I mean, I, I, I don't mean your children at Johnson & Johnson. I mean your children in industry. It probably hurts to see your kids shitting the bed. Continuing, Bill Hewlett and David Packard founded their company in a Palo Alto garage in 1939. Jerry Borras, co-author of Jim Collins, co-author with Jim Collins of Built to Last, Successful Habits of Visionary Companies, once asked Hewlett what he and Packard were thinking about when they started the company. Hewlett said, quote, look, we were a couple of young guys just out of Stanford. We thought we were pretty smart and we thought we could contribute something, end quote. The concept of contribution and humility has stayed with the firm. This evolved into a perspective, into a perspective known as the HP way, one of Bill Hewlett's chief legacies. Respect for the individual, contribution to the customer and the community, you see, never mind. Never mind. I'm, I'm, I'm. You see, I'm, I'm breaking up. I'm breaking up, Mr. Hewlett's legacy. <laughs> uh, respect for the individual, contribution to the customer and the community, integrity, teamwork, and innovation. Hewlett Packard was the source or an early adopter of progressive management strategies like flexible work hours, quote management by walking around, and open doors and cubicles. Many charged that CEO Carly Fiorina would jettison these values with the contentious 2001 Compaq acquisition. But HP emerged as a resolute leader, though still feeling its way in global, social, and environmental responsibility and disclosure. Hewlett-Packard, too, wants a payoff. The billions of impoverished people today who represent the information technology marketplace of the 21st century. I get it. I get it. I understand. It wants to increase. It wants to increase its stakeholder web. Why? Because a larger stakeholder web equals more value. Your network is your net worth. Next little subheading here, the global challenge the global challenge the issues in this area apply everywhere in the world but their character in rich countries is quite different from that in emerging economies there's two points here first point at a macroeconomic level rich countries consume the lion's share of the world's resources and generate the largest volumes of global pollution, in particular the greenhouse gases that cause global warming. These are also the countries where the rule of law is most universal, corruption is least prevalent, and nearly everyone, even the poorest, can get their minimal basic needs met. <laughs> I was gonna, about to talk shit about uh, the billions and billions of dollars that go overseas in 2022 and 2023. But, you know, I'm just, I'm just a, an American citizen for now. I'm a corporate citizen, but still American. So I live with it. I, and I, uh, I just live with it. Yeah, there you go. I make a living from it. I make a killing. 
Notable exceptions notwithstanding, this macroeconomic environment delivers or imposes a high standard playing field for all competitors. At a microeconomic level, laws and regulations require companies to meet standards related to employment, safe goods and services, commercial transactions, and so on. Second point here, the operating environment for companies in emerging economies is much more diverse and complex. A few nations like China and Singapore have strong governments. Others like Brazil are weaker but feisty. All too many lack the clout, maturity, and resources to manage the complex legal, social, environmental, and economic systems required to harness and control the impacts of globalization. In this broader domain, the cause... Sorry, no, I messed that one up. In this broader domain, the case for the new integrity and sustainability is, as we have already discussed, founded in trust. But trust is insufficient for an all-situation business case, particularly for choices that enhance sustainability. In this area, where the central principle is aligning present solutions with future needs, businesses must frequently lead their customers, shareholders, and other stakeholders rather than just hold their competence. Next little subheading, the sustainability paradox. Many companies point to tangible payoffs from a social or environmental strategy that is aligned with their business strategy. Nevertheless, the paradigmatic business case to prove it remains elusive and for good reason. The payoffs for treating customers, employees, and shareholders well is often obvious, but the social and environmental payoffs? Why not be a free rider and let others save the world? Open enterprises are in the minority. Few enterprises genuinely apply honesty, accountability, consideration, and transparency in a way of doing business. As a way, sorry, as a way of doing business. Let me repeat that. Few Enterprises genuinely apply openly. I messed that one up again. <laughs> Let me start from the top. Open enterprises are in the minority. Few enterprises genuinely apply honesty, accountability, consideration, and transparency as a way of doing business. Fewer still have recast their business strategies for global sustainability. Even fewer fully meet the expectations of civil society and other social and environmental stakeholders. BP, a high-profile responsible company, continues to seek drilling concessions in environmentally sensitive areas like Alaska and Russian. It evidently believes it has no choice and who's to argue with its business logic. If the case for always, quote, doing good were blindly obvious, many more would apply it. This problem reminds us of a 20-plus year debate in the information technology arena. Firms invest in IT on the presumption that it will pay off, cut costs, and maybe help generate new cells. But 
the return on investment in IT was invisible for a very long time. Beginning in the mid-1970s, economists and business executives pointed out that though capital costs on IT were visibly soaring and the benefits seemed intuitively obvious, no one could reliably identify, let alone measure, the payoff. This problem existed both in the overall economy and at the level of individual companies. Though IT spending soared, productivity growth remained stuck at a national rate of 1.5% a year. And where productivity growth accelerated, no one could prove the link to IT. This productivity paradox didn't stop companies from buying computers. In fact, during the 1980s, they did so with abandon, as individual departments bought PCs, printers, and local area networks. In 1995, along with the rise of the internet, productivity growth suddenly took off. Rates of 2.5% persisted at least until 2002, well after the dot-com crash. Economists and pundits offered all sorts of explanations for this sudden surge. One was simply the internet, the new wonder what seemed to be changing everything. The new wonder that, that, that seemed to be changing everything. I said what, sorry about that. Another was more prosaic. It wasn't the internet at all, but after 30 years of spending, there was enough technology out there to make a difference. A third was more subtle. Companies had finally figured out how to change their way of doing business to capitalize on the technology. The clincher explanation built on this third idea. Research by the McKinsey, by the McKinsey Global Institute, an arm of the consulting firm, the McKinsey Consulting Firm, shows that only a handful of industries and a handful of companies in these industries got the lion's share of IT productivity payoff. Three high-tech industries, semiconductor, computer assembly, and telecommunication contributed 36% of U.S. compound productivity growth between 1993 and 2000. And only three non-tech industries, that's retail, wholesale distribution, and securities training, securities trading, contributed another 40%. The 52 other sectors made do with the remaining 24% of growth. McKinsey confirmed this insight in studies of France and Germany. The conclusion? Only a handful of industries drive a country's productivity performance at any given time. How did these high power industries in each country succeed? The research suggests their executives solved the productivity paradox by taking charge of IT investments for business, not nerdy objectives. Leaders, according to McKinsey, did three things right. First, they trained. They, no, first they trained. First they tailored. They tailored their IT investments very specifically to their industry. Indeed, to their company's own unique ways of doing business. I, I suppose you could say trained. They trained their IT to cooperate with their business operation. Second, 
They ensured that I'm over here trying to justify my fucking up in the reading. Come on, Alex. Come on. Second, they ensured that projects occurred in the right order from foundational through everyday operational to futuristic building capabilities over time. Third, their decision makers managed IT decisions like any other business decision. To these, we'd add a fourth factor. Change happened across an industry when a ferociously motivated industry leader moved in to change the rules at a time when enough competitors had the means and competitive know-how to follow suit. Sustainable environmental and social practices are no more than a silver bullet than IT. Every business case and plan must be tailored to a company's specifics. Then the devil is in the detail of executive leadership and stepwise implementation. <laughs> Yo, I like how the book kind of just exposes itself. The devil is in the details of executive leadership and stepwise implementation. So if your executive leadership doesn't have a fucking backbone, don't expect the organization to act as it were a vertebrate. It's going to act spineless also. I mean, that's some corporate cowboy shit. You should know that. If your leader is weak, what you think? The, uh, the, the generals are going to be strong? I mean, they might. But it might just cultivate a, a, a an internally feudalistic environment. Continuing, over seven hundred million cars crisscross our planet, with one hundred fifty thousand added every day. Most car manufacturers have jumped on the environmental bandwagon, but some, particularly those based in Detroit, have done so reluctantly. While building and selling ever more monstrous and inefficient SUVs, this problem is not easily solved. Many consumers are indeed hooked on big cars. In 2002, customers lined up to buy GM's entire initial 20,000 vehicle run of the 4-ton, 55,000, 10-mile-to-the-gallon Hummer 2. <laughs> I remember those days. I remember those days. I'm old enough to remember. In fact, Hummer dealer waited. Hummer, in fact, Hummer dealer waiting slots sold on eBay for $7,000 or more. So just a spot on the waiting list was being, were, were being sold on auction sites. Predictably, when George Bush, when President, when President Bush says you're when President Bush, I don't know why I call him by his first name, like I'm on a first name basis with the dude. Uh, predictably, when President Bush in his 2003 State of the Union address proposed funds to develop hydrogen technologies and an incremental 7% cut in fuel economy standards for SUVs and light trucks by 2007, General Motors objected. With forebodings of doom, an industry-wide loss of 105,000 jobs, reduced safety because of lighter vehicles, and a cost increase of $275 per vehicle, and a revenue loss to GM of $1.1 billion. This 
is a lose-lose response. If GM is right, it's a sad commentary on the technological and adaptive capabilities of the U.S. auto industry. If wrong, it is obstinately so? Obstinately so? Obstinately just means like it's even more clearly so. Like it's it's just like a sharp, it's it, it's a sharp uh, confirmation essentially. Like it, it's it's just like a stark realization that <laughs> I'm over here trying to frame uh, the auto industry's fuck up. I mean, because it's true. If if GM is bitching about how they can't uh, keep up with standards and how they project that they're going to lose all types of billions of dollars and that there's going to be a a reduction in safety. I mean, come on, fam. That's just GM not wanting to change. And I've mentioned this before, like a change in process just means something different. It doesn't mean something more like it, it likely won't even be more laborious in the long run. You may actually be expending less energy in the long run and spending less money in the long run, sacrificing less time and energy and money and cash in the long run. But, but just the fact, the simple fact that I even dropped the word sacrifice in that, in that last little, uh, paraphrase there, just the fact that I I mentioned sacrifice, that's, oh, that's how the executive leadership views any fucking change. It's sacrificing the status quo. It's sacrificing what works now. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Even if it runs like utter dog shit. <laughs> it's fucking, it's fuckery. It's fuckery. Toyota, continuing. Toyota adopted a very different stance. The company immediately supported the Bush administration's proposed 7% fuel efficiency improvement as a good idea to achieve, quote, desirable results. Why? Rather than a threat Toyota sees the fuel technology revolution as an opportunity to strengthen its competitive position as an efficiency-driven price-performance leader with an ever-growing share in the automotive market. We could tell a similar story about Honda. Come on, man. Like, I get muscle cars. I get muscle cars, but there's always a way to make them more efficient. Even, even... If they are muscle cars, like I, I don't see why there should be a reduction in torque, right? If that's really what they're going for, and, and as to the Hummer, right? Speaking directly as to the Hummer, like it, it, it's just uh, a giant hunk. This is a, a giant box, a giant box you could potentially get buried under. Uh, I've heard of, uh, you know, c- certain <laughs> certain underground individuals who actually get buried uh, in in really expensive trucks like that. And this thing is 10 miles to the gallon. Now, that's just the way it was designed. You mean to tell me that engineers can't design a Hummer that gets substantially similar horsepower and torque and just better mileage? I mean, that, that's saying something. That's like GM shooting itself in the foot and then shooting itself in the head. <laughs> oh, shit. Toyota, continuing, Toyota wants to establish market leadership in next-generation fuel-efficient automotive technology in much the way that it changed the rules of the automotive industry through the quality revolution of the 1970s. In aid of this strategy, the company is improving the internal combustion engine, developing a hybrid gas-electric engine, and looking forward to a future of hydrogen power. 
As James Olson, its SVP of External and Regulatory Affairs for North America, says, quote, We can put three chickens in today's pot, two in the hybrid pot, and one in the fuel cell pot. All we need to do as we move forward is change the power source. End quote. The proof is in the pudding. The Japanese are first. No, sorry. The Japanese were first. They were the first to market in the United States with hybrids that consumers would actually buy. A specifically fitted Honda Civic and Toyota's Prius. These are arguably successful experiments for a niche eco-conscious market that chances are that by the time you read this, Toyota's hybrid Lexus SUV will be in its showrooms. Says Olson, quote, the Prius is not just driven by ethics. We are also fiercely competitive. The auto industry needs to be quick at getting clean and efficient. Lead the parade to define and control solutions to its advantage. We also need to stay ahead of government intervention. You see, that that's some corporate cowboy shit. You see, that's that's the type of mentality that takes you places. That's... <laughs> not the type of mentality that that leads you being buried in a fucking what is it a four ton fifty five thousand dollar ten mile per gallon box. <laughs> According to a study by the Union of Concerned Scientists, Honda and Toyota already outperformed the big three in emissions of global warming gases and smog forming pollutants. Is this because the big three sell a lot of inherently dirty trucks? Yo, don't get me wrong. I like dirty cars, right? I like dirty cars. I like dirty guns. It is what it is, right? I'm I'm American through and through. I enjoy my muscle cars. I enjoy my classics as well. But even, even with those vehicles, there are ways to make them more efficient. That's why when folks pull, that's why when folks pull cars off of lots or buy them used or buy project cars, they modify them. They modify them. I mean, unless you're going to return it to stock because you're a fucking nerd, right? And again, I've got no, I've got no qualms about you being a nerd and returning shit to stock. There is a certain quality. There's a certain sentimental quality that comes with having things stock. And if it's, Hey, if it's all original and it's got zero miles, shit's probably worth a fortune, right? So whether or not you choose to sell it or use it, keep it as a garage queen, up to you, up to you. The Japanese also lead Detroit in making their manufacturing and their suppliers resource and pollution efficient. Although the entire industry is now moving with dispatch on this issue. Perhaps Toyota is still spurred by the scary crises that surrounded its birth as a corporation. Japan's defeat in World War II, and the need to rebuild the country's industrial capabilities. Perhaps it's the fierce culture of waste elimination that is at the center of Kaizen. Now, car manufacturers around the world invest heavily in eco-efficiency and disclose like mad through their respective sustainability reports and websites. They all agree that waste-reducing manufacturing cuts costs. As for fuel-efficient cars, the tipping point is moving in from the horizon. This industry, with serious excess capacity problems, will increasingly be forced, pure and simple, to respond to and lead its customers. 
The point is, the Toyotas and Hondas of the world are in the process of seizing a new kind of market advantage. Only this time, it's because they have internalized the convergence between the new integrity and sustainable competitive advantage. Rather than bluster that energy efficiency threatens jobs and profits, Toyota squares the circle, eliminating all forms of waste in human effort, in materials, in energy costs, and in negative externalities. Not only contributes to short-term cost savings, but is a central expression of the fanatical commitment to quality that is pivotal to the company's long-term success. This, in turn, leads to a substantial cost advantage, which translates into profitability and growth that relentlessly outpace the North American competition. All this links into a game plan for sustainable shareholder value. Toyota President Oha hold on. Toyota President Cho Fujio commented in early 2002, "We are quote, we are determined to make long-term rewards for shareholders a priority." I think it is best to proceed without too much concern for American-style corporate governance and becoming obsessed with superficial structures such as short-term figures. Yo, this guy sounds. This guy sounds based. This person. This person sounds based, right? Perhaps the parad the paradigmatic business case has been available all along. We just need to take a decades long view to see it <laughs> yo cho fujio fucking based i gotta hand it to them i mean you, you gotta you gotta give roses where roses are due give props where props are due and uh what are the toyotas and the hondas of 2002 right those companies of 2002 were making moves not paying any attention not paying any regard to those moves being done by, uh, to those moves being contemplated by American companies. Why? Because they recognized that American companies were only in it for the short haul, for the short haul. And then, and then imagine, and then imagine these, uh, these big three, right? They are too big to fail. Why? Because they're coddled. They might be babied. So they get bailed out and yet they continue bitching that regu that, Regulations and uh, and stringent standards, high standards are are too high to live up to. <laughs> Yo, this is coming from the generation from a generation of people that is coming from a generation of people who uh, who hold their progeny, who hold their future to high standards. Why? Because they're soon set to retire, right? So they want a high standard of retirement, but they didn't sow any fucking seeds. Of high standards, of high quality. <laughs> it's just a, it's it's a vicious circle, man. And when it finally comes full circle, that shit gets dirty quick. And that concludes chapter seven of the Naked Corporation: How the Age of Transparency Will Revolutionize Business. Thank you very much for joining me as I read to you chapter six of this book. Uh, I really like this book so far. I mean, we're a little more than halfway through, and I'm 
I'm I'm not going to say I'm learning so much, right? Because I lived through a lot of this, but having read it in more detail, I'm able to contextualize. I'm able to contextualize management. I'm able to contextualize corporate governance. I'm able to contextualize innovation. I'm able to contextualize why the fuck I'm even here as a corporate cowboy, having been born into a system built by, operated by corporate, but chartered by the people for the people. Corporate is allowed to exist. (laughs) Don't fucking forget it. Just like your own government. Don't fucking forget it. Catch you next time.